I wonder, have you gotten into the, uh, the Christmas spirit already? How many of you all put up Christmas trees the day after Thanksgiving or before, all right? Uh, I mean, they don't even wait till Thanksgiving is over now to start playing the, the songs on the radio. It is a little different feeling this time, right? Um, for some of us, right, that, that this is a, a, a wonderful time where you're in the mood, you love this season. For others of us, like, you kind of like a modern-day Scrooge right, right around this time, right? You, you, you find this, this, this season to be hard for different reasons. Uh, perhaps um, some of your disdain is the commercialization of Christmas, that everything is about gifts and you are grumbling because you want Christmas to be about Christ. That's a good thing. But how can we make Christmas more Christ-centered? Many people have thought that it's by instantly overcorrecting anybody who dares mutter happy holidays with the immediate backlash, it's Merry Christmas. Others of us have just simply bowed out from all the celebrations altogether. No Christmas trees, no carols, no songs, no uh, jingles, no, no celebration, none of it. But I wonder if as Christians, we might be able to show and savor Christ in Christmas more by even celebrating more like how many people in our world celebrate. Uh, follow along for just a second. I mean, what is all the world thinking about often when it comes to Christmas? It's the giving of gifts. I mean, you already have, have lists or have made purchases for parents and grandparents, children and grandchildren, aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, many of you. And you have made those purchases irregardless of how those people have treated you, right? You have made those purchases irregardless of how close those people are, right? So, so while the world will say that Santa is the one who rewards you if you're good and does not reward you if you're bad, that's not how you act or operate, right? You also often give regardless of what others have done to you or how others have behaved. It's a small slice of how God operates. Why right? God lavishly gives good gifts, not because we deserve them, but simply because he is good. Amen. And so I wonder, even in this Christmas season, if we might embrace a little bit of lavishly giving good gifts as something of a sign of the incredible gift that God has given us. Not because he owes it to us, but because he's simply good. How might we bring more of Christ into our Christmas celebrations? That's something of what we'll think about over the next few weeks as a church, as we embark on a five-week Advent sermon series. The word Advent just means the, the highly anticipated arrival of something or someone significant, right? So many of us have those Amazon packages that we're tracking, right? We're highly anticipating their arrivals, but the advent that we want to talk about is not of some gift physically, but of some gift that is far greater of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so over the next five weeks, we'll look at five different passages and the miraculous burst that the Lord brings about his purposes through as we celebrate Christmas. And this morning we'll do it in seemingly a weird text from a hard book of the Bible in the Old Testament. This morning we'll look at Judges chapter 13 together. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Judges chapter 13? If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 213, and if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily understand, uh, feel free to take that Bible home with you. Judges chapter 13. We read, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. 
There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die. For we have seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. Or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. Here's what I think is the main idea of this passage, the, the main idea of the sermon. God is merciful and gracious to save undeserving sinners through the unexpected birth of a spirit-filled Savior. You didn't catch all that, it's in your bulletins. God is merciful and gracious 
to save undeserving sinners through the unexpected birth of a spirit-filled Savior. That's not just a New Testament phenomenon. As we see in our passage, that is an Old Testament reality. As we walk through this passage, we'll hang our thoughts on just two big points. So two points to the sermon. Number one, we see the people's miserable condition. We see that in verses one and two. The people's miserable condition. And secondly, we'll consider the Lord's marvelous compassion. We see that in verses three through twenty five. So number one, the people's miserable condition. And number two, the Lord's marvelous compassion. First, the people's miserable condition. Look with me again at at verse one. We read, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Notice here in verse one, a few often overlooked or perhaps disregarded realities. For one, we see that the people of Israel lived life in the sight of the Lord. And we all do. Pastor Warner mentioned it last week in his sermon. We all live quorum Deo, this, this phrase, this Latin phrase, which means we all live before the face of God. The Lord sits enthroned in the heavens and he looks down and sees and knows every single thing that we do. God is not only the divine author of life, God is also the divine audience of life. He sees everything. And not only does God see, but God evaluates every single thing we do. Notice we read specifically that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Friends, hear the Bible's truth this morning. There is objective right and wrong. There is objective good and evil. And God is the one who makes valuative judgments of which one of our actions fall into which one of those paths. There is no middle ground. There is no you make of your own category. God looks down and God makes a determination of what you're doing as either good or evil. And so the right question for us is never do I think what I'm doing is right? The right question is never is what I'm doing less bad than what other people are doing. The right question is never, what does everyone else think is right? The only right question to ask is, what does God think about what I'm doing? What does God think about how I'm living? A primary problem that many of us share is that we live as if we just don't care. That was the people of Israel's problem. We read, Again, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's a stunning statement if you know the biblical storyline. I mean, it was the people of Israel who, who were God's chosen people, right, whom God called his treasured possession. Right? It, it was them that God rescued from Egypt, pledging that I will be your God and you will be my people. It was the people of Israel who God said to be holy as I am holy, to reflect my holy nature before all the nations around you. When all the people wanted to see around the Mesopotamian region what God was like, God didn't say, I'm going to come down. God said, look at my people. They were to represent God. It was the people of Israel to whom God gave his law. It was the people of Israel who were supposed to love the Lord, their God, with all their hearts and to have no other gods before him. That was their first commandment. And yet. It's the people of Israel. Who now are the very ones doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Turning away from God and serving other gods. Well, that's the particular evil that's in mind here. So, so with your Bibles open, turn with me a few pages back to 
Judges chapter 2. You're going to need your Bibles open and sermons here, right? So just keep your Bible open, right? We're going to flip a little bit this morning. Turn your Bibles over to Judges chapter 2 and look at verse 13. Judges chapter 2, verse 13. What was this particular evil? The Bible clearly explains it here. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Verse 12, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And the striking thing is, they didn't just do this one time. They did it again and again and again and again. With God responding by sending them into the oppression of foreign rulers as a sign of judgment and then raising up a judge to rescue the people of Israel out of their judgment. Only for those people of Israel freshly rescued to go right back into the thing that led them to ruin. If you got your Bible still open, jump with me now to, to Judges from Judges chapter 2, verse 11, to Judges chapter 3, verse 7. And track the trajectory here. Judges chapter 3, verse 7, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroths. Drop down to Judges chapter 3, verse 12, just a few verses later. We read, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Move a few verses down to Judges chapter 4, verse 1. We read, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Judges chapter 6, verse 1, a few pages over. I love that sound. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. I'll flip a few verses or pages over to Judges chapter 10, verse 6. We read there the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, the gods of, they served all the gods. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So that when we get to our passage, to Judges chapter 13, verse 1, the cumulative and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord is meant to ring like a loud siren in our ears. Again? How could they do that again? But before you get on your high horse... How could they do so much evil again and again and again and again? Understand where you should find your place in Judges chapter 13 is not with the rescuer. It's with these rascals who need to be rescued. You and I find ourselves right there in Judges chapter 13 verse 1 again. We've done what's evil in the sight of the Lord. How could we sin again on God? How could we for the 10,000th time, two times the Lord who saved us from all our sins? How can we again tell God no in favor of some temporary pleasure or a little bit of money or for the praise of people and the esteem of people? How could we again do evil in the sight of the Lord? How could we set up and serve whatever person or functional God there is that's Captivating our heart and taking all our time and attention and affections away from the Lord himself. And an even better question to ask. How could God put up with us again? Well, I was meditating on this passage this week. And it's just that again, over and over again. Right. All this sin. But again, the Lord was patient and kind. Saints, if you are here this morning and life isn't going the way you thought, 
right? The things haven't turned out amazingly well. And maybe you're wondering, is there anything that I can grab onto to, to have hope and to, to give praise to the Lord? There absolutely is. You have abundant reason to give praise to God this morning because of God's long suffering and his patience towards you. That he, the holy ruler of all the universe, puts up with so many of our agains. I mean, we write one another off quick. One insult, one sideways comment, and we're not talking for at least several weeks. Maybe never again. We're good. I got enough French. But God puts up with us again and again and again and again. Praise God for his mercy and for his forbearance and for his long suffering. How many agains can this God put up with? Praise him and emulate God's forbearance and his patience. If God is like that towards us, oh, we ought also to be like that with one another. We ought also to learn how to bear with one another's failings, with one another's weaknesses, with one another's insults and criticisms again and again and again and again. Saints, that does not make you gullible. That makes you godly. So you think the only picture of godliness is your head in the Bible 24-7 and praying all the time. Godliness means that you should grow to be more like God. And if God is forbearing and patient, we ought also to be growing in those qualities. People will sin against you again and again and again. What will be your posture? Look at God's posture towards us. The people like Israel, people of Israel like us, deserve to be scorched the first time they abandoned God. Friends, one sin should send us to eternity in hell because we've offended so great of a being such as the God of the universe. But God is is merciful and patient. And yet, he is also a just judge. He will not just allow our sin to go unchecked. Sin always has consequences. So see here at the end of verse one, that as a result of his people's unfaithfulness, God gives the people of Israel up into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. It's what he'd done in previous times of their rebellion. When they rebelled, he gave his people up to their enemies. But 40 years is the longest you see in the book of Judges. If you remember, it's the same amount of time that God judged the previous generation for their unfaithfulness, sending them wandering in the wilderness for 40 long years. It's a bad situation that Israel has gotten themselves in. But there's something conspicuously missing in verse one. It's any indication that Israel understands themselves to be in a bad situation. Let me turn back to the passage we just looked at a little while ago in Judges chapter 3. We, we, we read in, in Judges 3, 7 that the people of Israel, again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we walk through subsequent passages that have that same kind of formula. Again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. But in each of those passages we just walked through, where Israel sinned against the Lord and God sent them into the oppression of an enemy, There's also every single time something like a statement we see in Judges chapter 3, verse 9. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Drop down to chapter 3, verse 15. After they've sinned and God sent them into judgment, we read the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. There was sorrow, there was remorse, maybe even faint signs of repentance for what they'd done after God sent them into judgment. So they cried to the Lord, and every time they cried to the Lord, God sent a judge to come and rescue them from the hand of their oppressor. But in our passage, turn back to chapter 13, after verse 1, 
The people are given into the hand of the oppressor for 40 years, and yet the people do not cry out to the Lord. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. The people have become okay in their sin. They've become comfortable in their corruption. They're comfortable under the oppression even of the long-standing enemy of the Philistine army. They've so long lived apart from the Lord's rule that they don't mind the Philistines rule. God ain't been the king over their lives in so long. They don't even care that they have other kings over them. But friends, that's what sin does. It changes your thoughts, your desires, your appetites, your norms. It changes your attitude towards God and towards sin itself. It makes you think that your enemies are safe and God is the one to keep away. The people of Israel do evil in God's sight, are judged by God and sent into the hand of the Philistines and they're fine with it. It's a picture of the spiritual bankruptcy of the people of God. It's a picture that gets personalized in verse two as the author moves seemingly roughly and oddly from describing Israel's condition to talking about a specific family. But don't miss the artistry here and the the importance of this transition. In verse two, we read, there was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. Manoah's wife's womb is something of a window into the spiritual state of Israel. Empty, barren, lifeless, hopeless. Verses one and two just leave us with a staggering picture of the people's miserable condition. It's darkness. Deadness. But the perfect backdrop upon which the Lord of life to shine his light upon. Which leads us to our second point that we see in this text, the Lord's marvelous compassion. Point number two, the Lord's marvelous compassion. If you're alert, you might sense the Lord's compassion and his mercy start to shine forth brightly, even in the description of this man, Manoah's wife in verse two. Even as we read that she's barren and has no children. I mean, we've heard those words before in the biblical text. Right. I mean, call it out. Who else in the Bible is described as barren? Sarah. Sarah. Rebecca, who else? Hannah, okay, yep, keep going. Elizabeth, okay. Yeah, I think we might have covered the main ones of those, right? Yeah, right, there's several of those things, right? There's Sarah, Abraham's wife in Genesis 11. There's Rebecca, um, Isaac's wife in Genesis 25. There's Hannah, who we'll talk about next week in 1 Samuel 1. There's Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother in Luke chapter 1. Right? Often these narratives surrounding barren women in the Bible come right on the brink of God bringing about his redemptive purposes in the lives of his people through the barren woman. And so from Sarah came Isaac and from Rebekah came Jacob. These descendants from Abraham whom God promised to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. It's, it's Jacob who has 12 sons which become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those 12 tribes is the tribe of Dan. The tribe, we read in verse 2, that this household is from. From Hannah's barren womb that someone shouted out, God brought forth the great prophet Samuel, the forerunner of the great king David. And from Elizabeth's barren womb, God brought forth John the Baptist, the forerunner of the true and better king, the savior of all the world, Jesus Christ. When you read about barren women in the Bible, 
It's often the case that the biblical authors are intentionally putting those words there to pick up in your mind the earlier references to barren women. So that when you read those words, it's not, oh, let me think about hopelessness. It's, oh, what has God done before when the woman was barren? Oh, he's brought forth much blessing to rescue his people. Friends, keep that in mind in the coming weeks as we read and study 1 Samuel 1 and Luke chapter 1. Notice how the authors of those books are picking up so many of the details of previous chapters, sections in the Bible. If you want the Bible to come alive in your reading of the Bible, read more of the Bible and see how much there's intentional interlock right between these books. God is over time unfolding a story of his glory that culminates in his son, Jesus Christ. Into this woman's barrenness in verse two. God speaks a word of life. Into her hopelessness, God brings hope. Verse three, and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children. Well, duh, we know that. It seems like a cold twist of the knife. I mean, this angel comes and just doubles down on her bitter condition. But so the bad news sinks in even deeper so that she might more appreciate than this unexpected news, this amazingly good news, this unthinkable news. But you, you see, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. You shall go from barren to bearing, not just a child, but a son, one who can bring forth fruit for generations upon generations upon generations. Friends, God is able to turn a wilderness into a waterfall, to turn a barren womb into a fruitful womb, to turn a hopeless situation into a joyful celebration. The angel of the Lord goes on in verses four and five to talk about some specifics regarding this birth and regarding this boy who will be born. He tells the woman that she must abstain from wine and strong drink and any unclean foods. And that she must not put a razor upon the boy's head because he will be a Nazarite to God from birth. And we learn in, in Numbers chapter six about this Nazarite vow. Any man or any woman could voluntarily uh, dedicate themselves, set themselves apart for service to God, right? usually for a set amount of time. The vow would include certain stipulations such as abstaining from wine or strong drink and staying away from unclean foods or anything else unclean and, and to never have your hair cut for as long as that period of that vow remained. But notably in this case, right, there would be a Nazarite, this, this, this child would be a Nazarite, not simply for a specific set of time, but from his very birth, from the womb. It's the same narrative we read in the the stories of Samuel and of John the Baptist. This child here, Samson, was to have his whole life devoted to the Lord. Why? Because of the purpose for which the Lord would use him. You know, look at the end of verse 5. We learn what this child would do. He will begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He would rescue God's people from their enemy. It's a foresign of what another angel told another unexpected expectant mother of the birth of another but better savior. When the angel appeared to the virgin Mary and told her in Matthew 1:21 that the child that was in her womb would be named Jesus for he would save his people from their sins. Do you see the Lord's amazing kindness and grace here shown to the unsuspecting and the undeserving? I mean, notice how God visits the lowly. This woman whom the angel of the Lord appears to is not even named. She's just a woman. 
And what we do know about her family and their history is not anything to boast about. I mean, her husband, Manoah, is from a tribe of Israel that most of us never remember to name in the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, it's seemingly the lamest and plainest of all the tribes in Israel. I mean, you remember the tribe of Judah. You remember the tribe of Levi. Right. You might even remember because they got strange names that the tribe of Nebulon or or Issachar. But the tribe of Dan, I mean, Dan is just like this is so plain. Like who remembers that? The tribe of Dan It's just begging to be forgotten. Uh, but as one commentator notes, that's often where God starts in obscurity in hopelessness where there is no human energy or ability to serve as a starter. Through this obscure woman, from this obscure tribe, God graciously vows to bring a savior who would save his people Israel. Even though his people Israel were not looking for a savior. Remember, they're under the rule of the Philistines, but they've become so comfortable and so corrupt that they are no longer crying out to God for help. And yet God sends help anyway. As steep as they are in their sin, God is committed to bring about a savior. He's better to us than we deserve. Even when we abandon him, when he's the furthest thing from our mind, we are on his mind. His mind is on us to rescue us. Friends, salvation is always God's initiative. It's never us clamoring, God, come save me. It's always God's self-designation and self-determination that I will save them. Sadly, in our sin, we don't seek him, but greatly the Lord seeks us. He gives us gifts that we don't ask for and gifts that we don't deserve. The greatest gift even of salvation. What grace what mercy, what love shown to undeserving sinners like us. This woman understands that. She runs and tells her husband the good news. I mean, that's what you do when you receive good news. You run and tell somebody else. <laughs> that's what evangelism is. She says in verse 6, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I didn't ask where he was from. I didn't, he didn't tell me his name. And then she just goes on to convey the, the Nazarite restrictions that the child was to follow. You may notice here that the, the, the woman recounts the angel of the Lord. But, but notice she, she calls him a man of God who appeared as an angel. Well, is it an angel or is it a man of God? Well, if you've read through several passages in the scripture, you, you see that often when angels appear, they don't appear how we think angels appear. There are no halos and wings. What do angels look like? They look like men in dazzling apparel, right? When they come to the, the women come to Jesus' tomb, what do they see? They see two men sitting in dazzling apparel, right? We'll learn why this specific angel is particularly of, full of splendor and full of glory shortly. The story progresses and the coming verses with the second appearance from the angel of the Lord, precipitated by Manoah's prayer. After his wife tells him this news, Manoah prays in verse 8 for the Lord to send the angel of the Lord to teach he and his wife what they are to do with the child. Oh, what prompted Manoah's prayer? Was it doubt? Did he disbelieve his wife? Are you, look, I know you really want this baby. And now you didn't give yourself over to hysteria now. You didn't. Told you to stay away from that strong drink. That man told you that, didn't he? Right? Was it confusion? Was it the desire for more confirmation or for clarity? What prompted Manoah's prayer? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But Manoah here models what we should do when we might have some doubts, when we might be confused. When we might need more confirmation or clarity, we don't keep all those things within or do a Google search. We should pray to the Lord. Ask God 
to give you what you need. You have not, the Bible says, because you ask not. There's far more riches in the storehouses of heaven than we are willing to ask for. And look at what happens when Manoah asks in verse 9. And the Lord listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. Saints, the God we serve is not deaf or silent like the false gods that the people of Israel were serving. God is living and active. Get this. The God of the universe hears our prayers. That prayer of confession that Adam prayed here this morning at 1042 a.m. in Temple Hills, Maryland. The Lord of the universe heard it. That longer prayer that I prayed a few minutes ago, right? Asking God for a whole bunch of things at maybe 10.55 a.m. to maybe 11.55 a.m. That's probably way longer than I thought. The God of the universe heard every single word of that prayer. He listens to us. That is absolutely amazing. Not only does he listen to us, he answers our prayers, right? God didn't owe Manoah an answer. He could have told Manoah, look, I already told y'all what to do. I'm not going to repeat myself. That's how your parents used to say. I ain't going to tell you twice now. But the Lord is more tender and kind than we are as parents. He sends the angel once again to the woman who then runs to get her husband. And so now Manoah is able to interview this angel and see what needs to happen. And so look at, at verse 12. Uh, Manoah says to the angel, now, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Friends, notice faith at work here. Manoah and his wife, barren as they were for who knows how long. Do not doubt God's power and his promise. Manoah doesn't say if your words come true, but rather when. When you do what you said you would do. And notice the angel's response in verse 13. He says, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful to do. He doesn't provide any new information, but rather just regurgitates what he already told Manoah's wife. Here again is God's kindness, repeating to us what his plans and his will are for our lives. Saints, we often don't need any new information. What then is required of us is to simply believe and to act upon what God has already revealed. Friends, that's still the case today. With all of life's issues, with all the new things being thrown at you, you don't need a new revelation from God. You don't need God to give you a new sign. You don't need a, a fresh manifestation of God for yourself. Oh, if God came as an angel to me, then I'd really. No, you, you don't. You wouldn't. <laughs> God is still speaking to you today, though. And he's still speaking a word of life into whatever dead situation you might be living in today. He's still speaking a word of hope into whatever hopelessness you might be living in today. And it's through what he's already said in his word. Saints, you have all you need for all you need. It's, 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 it's the Bible. The scriptures that are able to make us wise for salvation. Uh, the scriptures that are able to equip the man or woman of God for every single good work. The scriptures that encourage and comfort and equip and counsel all of us for all of life's problems. We don't need anything new. The Lord comes and says, listen to what I've already said. The question is, will we believe? Manoah does. He doesn't say, oh, I, I need something better than what you gave her. He listens and doesn't ask any more questions about give me more than that. The story progresses, though, and it deepens as exposed to the identity of this angel of the Lord. Who is he? The author knows, but as yet in the story, Manoah and his wife don't know his identity. We read in, verses, in verse 15 that Manoah seeks to, to keep and provide a meal for this man of God as a, as a sign of hospitality and appreciation. But notice where the angel of the Lord directs Manoah to give gratitude. 
to God. He tells him in verse 16 that, that he will not accept the meal, but instead desires that Manoah offer a burnt offering to the Lord. And we read parenthetically there that Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Just a man of God who he thought deserved honor was his mindset. And so Manoah tries another time to, to honor this man of God who brought this good news. I mean, yeah, you told us something amazing. How can we honor you? Let's make a meal for you. No. Okay, let me try again. Verse 17. What is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. Verse 18. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is wonderful. And here again, we're intended, if we're careful Bible readers, to pick up some of the language here from previous Bible accounts. Again, the scriptures unfold to progressively tell us a story. We've heard something similar in the biblical account. In Genesis chapter 32, when we read that a man appeared in the night and wrestled with Jacob, with Jacob insisting that he would not let the man go until he blessed him. What do we read in Genesis chapter 32, verse 29? After he wrestled with him, Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. It's an account in Genesis 32 that Manoah would have known well as a faithful Jew. It's an account that the original readers of Judges would have known well. It's an account that the author of Judges expects all the readers, including us, to know well as a backdrop. Who is this angel of the Lord? It's nothing other than the Lord himself. Revealing himself to Manoah and his wife as wonderful, too wonderful for you to fully know. So please don't ask. And yet. Even too wonderful to know fully, yet making himself known. And making his love and his care and his salvation known to this little. Off the cuff, out of the way, nondescript family. It's what's called in the Bible, in theological terms, a theophany, a visible manifestation of God. You see these sometimes in the Bible, right? Not all the time. Everything is a theophany, an appearance of God. But theos just means God. Phaneo, Greek word just means appearance, appearance of God. You don't see these all the times, but you see them sometimes. The burning bush is a theophany, God appearing, right? God appears through a storm to Ezekiel, right? God appears and discloses himself through this often designation in the Bible of the angel of the Lord as well. Not every time in the Bible that we see angels, is it the Lord himself? But several times when this specific designation, the angel of the Lord is talked about, it is a theophany. It's a manifestation of God, which again is mind blowing that the Lord himself shows up here. He didn't just send an emissary. He didn't just drop a note from heaven. He came himself. God of the world came to this little clan in Dan, to this forgotten woman who's not even named, and her husband Manoah. He came to this very nondescript, very ordinary, very unremarkable people in the tribe of Israel. And he came at a time where Israel was at the height of its apostasy, turning away from the Lord. They would not and could not come to them. And yet God came to them. This God who is wonderful, he says, came to do wondrous things. I love how that's just noted in verse 19. How Manoah goes and offers his offering to the Lord. And just look at that description right after that. He offered it to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. <laughs> I mean, that's who God is and what he does. This Lord, who is wonderful, he does what his name reveals. He works wonders. As Manoah makes this offering, something amazing and wonderful happens. The angel of the Lord, we read, goes up in the flame to heaven. 
And the response? Manoah and his wife fall on their faces. For they now realize that this was the angel of the Lord God himself. And the reality of that sets in and produces fear. Manoah says to his wife in verse 22, we shall surely die for we have seen God. Now I wonder what's your natural reaction to that statement. Maybe you quickly want to put out the fire. No, you won't. God is lovable and huggable. He's like the, the, the cosmic version of Santa Claus, always holly and jolly. God's just like grandpa. He'll give you little worthers and, you know, pats on the back and he'll give you some money when you need it every now and then. He's not going to say anything bad to you or do anything bad to you. That's not the picture of the Bible of, of God that the Bible presents, though. The Bible presents God as gloriously holy. And whenever God comes before sinful man in the Bible, this is the response. People fall on their faces in worship. People are faltering in their heart with fear because you realize just how incredibly sinful your sinfulness is in the light of someone who's never sinned. In the light of someone whose holiness is blazing like a flame. Manoah's reaction here should have been the reaction of all of Israel. Yes, the Lord himself was in the presence of Manoah. But remember, verse one says that all of Israel lived in the presence of God. And yet they discounted him. There was no falling on their faces to God. Instead, the text tells us through those verses we read that they were falling on their faces and bowing down to the gods of Sidon and to the gods of the Philistines and to every other god but the only god who deserves worship. They took God lightly as we so often do to our peril. We need to have a bigger biblical vision of God. Before him, we are all unclean and we all deserve his wrath. But notice the amazing counterbalance, the amazing, amazing counterbalance, the amazing other truth that Manoah's wife presents. That God's presence, which ought to bring immediate condemnation, instead brings comfort. Look at verse 23. Manoah's wife says to him, if the Lord had meant to kill us. <laughs> I love that. If he intended to do us harm. Then she starts to, to, to delineate some of the things that, that would not have happened. If he meant to kill us, one, he would not have accepted the burnt offering. Two, he would not have accepted the grain offering. Three, he would not have shown us all these things. Four, he would have not announced all these wonderful things to us. He didn't owe us any of that. Oh, you need some friends like Manoah's wife. All right, because right? some of us be off balance. We only see God as the judge. We only see God as against us. We only see God in his fury and his wrath. And we need some fellow believers with us. That's why God put you in the church. To remind you, yes, that's true, and the Lord is gracious and loving and good and a savior. Manoah's wife comes along. Yes, this God is big, Manoah. Yes, this God is awesome, Manoah. Yes, this God's holiness is blazing, Manoah. But this God who's big and awesome and blazing is for us and not against us. Oh, it's an amazing thing when you know that the God of all the universe with all his power and immensity uses all that power and immensity, not against you, but for you. God did not come so that we could that we would die. God came so that we would not die. Right. She, he said she's saying if God intended to kill us, would he have come to us? Would he have announced these things to us? No, this God came not to do us dirty. God came to save us from death through the miraculous birth of a savior who would save us through his death. You get that? God came to save us from death through the birth of a savior who would save us through death. And that savior, at least temporarily, was Samson. We read in verse 24 that this woman who was barren bore a son 
and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtael. The Samson story is recorded in the next three chapters of this book. If you got time this afternoon, it'd be a good thing. Read uh, Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16. And if you've read the story or know the story, you know that this man Samson did not live his life in total devotion to God as he vowed to do from birth. He went near a vineyard, not staying away from strong drink. He ate honey from the carcass of a lion and intermingled and intermarried with Philistines, not staying away from what was unclean. And he allowed his head to be shaven with a razor, breaking all the vows to God. He wasn't perfect. He was sinful. And yet God still used him to save his people. And he did it through Samson's death. We read about it in Judges chapter 16. While in bondage, held captive by the enemy Philistines, Samson prayed and God filled Samson with his spirit to bring down the pillars of the house on himself, but also on the thousands of Philistine lords and rulers and people that filled the house. Through Samson's death, judgment was delivered to God's enemies and deliverance was beginning to be wrought for God's people. Uh, what God promised would happen through the miraculous birth of this promised son was fulfilled. But only partially. Notice earlier our text promised that Samson would only begin to save Israel. The final deliverance was to come through the miraculous birth and death of another son. A greater savior. Jesus Christ himself, God in the flesh who became man. He too was born to an unexpected couple at a time when the people were dead in their sins and not seeking a savior. Jesus was born, but unlike Samson, he did devote his entire life to God from his birth to his death, obeying God's commands perfectly. And yet he found himself also where Samson found himself. In bondage. Only Jesus' bonds were voluntary. Ain't no Philistines took him, right? Jesus said, No one takes my life, I lay it down. He gave himself up to be captured and to die. And at the time of his death, he also prayed. But unlike Samson, he didn't pray to be filled with God's spirit and with God's power, he was already filled with all the spirit and all the power. No, rather he prayed that the father would forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he went and did the work to accomplish the forgiveness that you and I so desperately needed. He died for his enemies that we might become the people of God, that we might be rescued from God's wrath and granted eternal life. Jesus was born. And died so that we might live and be freed from the bondage to sin and to Satan and to death. He came into our darkness. He came into our deadness. He came into our hopelessness and brought life and light and everlasting joy. But it can only be found in him. Friends, do you know him? You know, Jesus, as your savior, have you turned from your sins and put your trust in God's promised savior? If you've never done that, you must do that today. You will never be happy with all the other tangible gifts unless you receive the eternal gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've already trusted him, you ought to praise Jesus this morning, even from the book of Judges. Marvel at the Lord's mercy this morning. Marvel at his amazing kindness and his patience and his pity and compassion. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, 
Oh, we might lament, oh, he's going to kill us. No, we need Manoah's wife. No, he doesn't intend to kill you. He did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Praise God. That he intervenes in the midst of our iniquity. That he disrupts our deadness and brings life, not just in a womb, but he brings life even from the tomb. Through the Christ the birth of a son who came and lived for us and died for us and rose again for us so that we might be forever free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is amazing. (laughs) Uh, How you reveal yourself over time, how you tie in all these details, how you have an eternal plan to save not dependent on us, not even our sin uh, can disrupt your plans. We praise you for your mercy. Oh, Lord, we pray that we will lavish in your kindness, that our hearts would grow in love towards you. Oh, Lord, grab our hearts for Jesus. And this Christmas season, Lord, help us to begin uh, to honor him as our greatest treasure and our only hope. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.